All right, gang, so just a quick heads up. Uh, instead of doing what I've been promising for ages, which is to get around to that audiobook, instead I went ahead and compiled all 10 years of the Blue Skies writing that I did and put it together in a fucking book. It's going to go on Amazon here real damn quick, listed as the Lunatic Fringe book. You'll be able to find it in pretty much any of the marketplaces that Amazon has. It is literally every single word I ever wrote from that magazine, and it's all put together in nice book form. You can buy it in ebook, you can buy it in paperback, and believe it or not, you can even buy it in fucking hardback. Uh, again, it's going to be available here really, really soon. This one not only includes all the articles that were in the first fucking pilot book, but about 60 more articles. It's got 350 or so pages of some pretty funny, inappropriate, and hopefully informative shit. So check it out. Blue skies call. They seduce us, pulling us irresistibly upwards, reminding us to fly our own line, on our wings, and in life. We are the seekers, adventurers, being one with the air, feeling everything and nothing at once. That's the magic we chase. Follow the call. Find your pure wild flight with NZ Aerosports. Of course, I absolutely love the NZ Aerosports business model. I mean, come on. One glance at an Icarus fuck yeah sticker and you know it lines up perfectly with the fucking pilot mentality. But outside their wonderful use of colorful language and a great company vibe, there's a long list of reasons to say NZ Aerosports fuck yeah. NZ Aerosports blows me away right out of the gate as a canopy manufacturer with a bold offer. They give you 10 jumps on your brand new nylon to decide if you want to keep it swap it out, or even return it for a refund. I mean, seriously, how incredible is that? That's like getting halfway through a prom and deciding you prefer the slightly racier date that goes down faster. Seriously, they do that. If you're not madly in love with your new canopy after 10 jumps, they'll let you swap it out for another size or model or even get your money back. And the range of canopies they've got? Man, they've got a style canopy to fit every jumper and every situation with models you know and trust like the Sapphire 3, the perfect choice for the beginner or intermediate canopy pilot, the Crossfire 3 when you're ready to kick it up that elliptical notch, the JFX 2 if you're looking to up your new swoop game, the Leia as the workhorse and dirt water dirt beast, or the Petra. The Petra cranks out crazy power and is nothing short of a record breaker. But hey, it's not always about speed either. Take the Kraken. Built as a low pack volume canopy specifically with wingsuiting in mind, she gives you all the performance you're looking for with the reliability you need that'll have you itching for that next formation, rodeo, or puffy cloud. So, the equipment is top-of-the-line kick-ass stuff, as you already know, but how about the team? Well, the customer service gang is there to sort you out whenever you need them. Maddie and Beto are always there to help with Jen holding the reins. They're available for you at sales at nzaerosports.com, and they've got a kick-ass live chat tool on the website if you're wanting to hit someone up right away. These are the crew you're going to want to talk to to get those custom orders in. With the stock nylon, 
Once you know what you want, they'll have that shit on a FedEx truck as soon as the credit card machine says approved and get you in the air in no time. For your custom orders, you'll be able to get a time frame for building and shipping when you design it, so get to it. And demos. They've got demos in the U.S. available from their partner Rock Sky Market. The whole U.S. demo fleet is there with Sapphire 3, Crossfire 3, Kraken, JFX2, and Leia canopies in a range of sizes. They also offer student and tandem demos in the U.S. Bottom line, every step of the way, NZ Aerosports is there to get you what you need, and I personally couldn't be happier to be teamed up with them here on Lunatic Fringe. And now, time to get started with Lunatic Fringe Into the Void, brought to you proudly by NZ Aerosports. Fuck yeah! Coming straight from the cockpit, it's another episode of Lunatic Fringe with the fucking pilot. Ready, set, go! Alright, back in the can for another edition of Lunatic Fringe Into the Void and straight into it. Let's go. Who the fuck are you and what do you do? My name is Mo Valetto. I am the owner and sole operator of Tailored for Survival, which is uh, specializing in uh, the design and sewing of life support systems. The design and sewing of life support systems. All right, you're going to have to expand on that before we get too far. Tell me about life support systems. Well, I didn't want to lock myself into like Moe's parachutes only. Um, I enjoy uh, designing and coming up with different things. Uh, for example, uh, I had a project I did for the uh, military. Do you know what a uh, maple seed is that falls out of the tree? It's a little seed with a wing on it, and it, we called them helicopters as kids. Sure. Um, I was building these for the military or doing prototypes. They're about three feet long. They were made out of Kevlar, and for the seed, they had a special magic piece of metal, mm. and they only gave me a block of wood because it was top secret, whatever that metal was. Uh they would drop these things from aircraft by the hundreds or shoot them up with cannons, and they had a computerized brain on it. And these things would spin at 30,000 hertz, and the little computer would guide this thing into, like, tanks and jeeps and things like that. And the fact that it's spinning so fast, that piece of metal just tears everything up like a drill it's just it just throws shrapnel everywhere jesus um so when they brought this to me they were having issues um they were testing these things out in a wind tunnel so they'd get this thing started with an electric drill and they would stand in the wind tunnel with garbage can lids and try and keep this thing in the center (laughs) (laughs) well they were spinning so fast that the metal was busting through the kevlar Oh, so they had already gone to two other uh, design companies, and they kept reinforcing this Kevlar and overstitching and doing all this crazy stuff. And when they brought it to me, I looked at their drawings and I went, "Oh, this is simple." And I just eliminated the stitching and put a fold where it was blowing out. Huh. So I I built them to their specs, and then I built one to my specs. And when when the engineers showed up to pick them up. I showed them my design, and they went, oh, fuck. Why didn't we think of that? It was just so simple. They over-engineered the shit out of everything. Well, that sounds like the military, though, doesn't it? 
Yes, absolutely. <laughs> well, uh, so, so I want to jump way back though, because I think we we uh, we definitely jumped the gun and got way ahead of ourselves. You started out in my favorite sport on the planet a few years back. I did. You've been um, in skydiving for a little while. When did you when did you find skydiving and doing? I'd call it extreme sports, but back then it wasn't extreme sports. It was just doing stupid shit, right? Yeah. <laughs> um it still might be stupid in some people's eyes i'm sure oh yeah 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 so how'd you get how did the journey begin for you um i grew up it must have been like in the 60s there was a black and white tv show called ripcord Mm. and i don't remember like the storyline or any of that but i remember these guys parachuting basically and then uh Every summer, uh, there was a, a demo would have skydivers uh, jump into the ball field at our uh, ball games. And this was where in the and, states? Uh, Freeport, Pennsylvania. Okay, small small town, uh, twelve hundred people maybe. Hmm. Everybody knew everybody's business, uh, but the local ball team would have these uh, exhibition jumpers come in, and I'd watch these guys come in downwind under their rounds and just hammer. <laughs> Uh, but it just looked like something I always wanted to do. Mm. Um, I got drafted in 1971. Uh, I ended up in Fort Huachuca, Arizona, down by the, uh, border of Mexico. And there was a guy that I was stationed with from Texas, uh, Jimmy G. Watson. He was a crop duster pilot. Okay. So, uh... He said, let's go into Tucson. I'll rent a plane and take you for a ride. And I'd never been in a small plane before. I thought, oh, this is cool. Let's go. <laughs> so he rented out this little acro plane, took me up. He's flying through the desert, touching the wingtips on mesquite bushes, <laughs> flying under power lines <laughs> like crop duster pilots do. All right. Uh, he shut the engine off once and landed, uh, dead sticked it in on a dirt road out in the desert. Um, he says, hang on, I'll, 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 uh, I'll show you what I just learned. He was taking some acro lessons. Oh Lord. So he was doing a, uh, a hammerhead stall. I think that's when you dive the plane and then you pull up until it stalls and you pitch it over and it spirals down. Is that? It's pretty close. Yeah. 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 Well, when he did that, I was in the back of this plane and I could see the back of his head, the dashboard and the earth. And I thought, oh, that's just got to be the greatest picture. So I pulled out my camera and I said, do that again, Jimmy. Took off my seatbelt. I knew nothing about <laughs> And he pulls up and he goes into this, this hammerhead and I'm bouncing all over the cockpit. I shut off the engine, cameras flying, everything. He goes, what the hell are you doing? I said, I want to get a picture. He goes, you never take your seatbelt off in a plane. <laughs> so that was my introduction to uh, negative Gs, I guess. That's a hell of an introduction. And- <laughs> <clears throat> we saw a couple airplanes or a couple canopies out in the distance. I said, let's go check that out. So we went over and landed, and uh, there was a first jump course. It was $40. Oh. So we signed up right then and there, uh, static line. Mm. Made our first jumps. I landed. I said, I want to do this the rest of my life. I bought a parachute right then and there for 90 bucks. 
<laughs> now, this was back military. when they had the old military surplus, right? Right. <laughs> oh, Jesus. And, and uh, what attracted me was um, it was real high overcast that day. And relative work was coming of age. The people were barely getting eight ways. It was a big deal to get a get an eight way. Mm. And I watched the twin beach go across, and I watched eight people get out of this with this high overcast, so I could see the little dots up there. Sure. And the distance between the first guy and the last guy, it's like that last guy is flying. He's not falling. He's going horizontal. Yep. I want to fly because <laughs> most of us, a lot of us have had those flying dreams. Sure. You know, uh, I'm sure you've had them. Oh, yeah. Um, and I thought that's what I want to do. So I, it, I was into horizontal movement. Hmm. And with today's wingsuits, my dream has, has come true. Oh, it's insane. The, the jump forward, I mean, because you're talking all the way back in like the gypsy moth days, right? Um, yeah, this is, I mean, everything was experiment. Everything was experimental back then. I mean, I've heard stories from some of the OGs that talked about what an amazing time it was that someone had passed a baton in free fall. And this was not that long ago, really. It yeah. Really, I mean, it really wasn't. And now we're flying down the sides of fucking mountains on canopies or on, on wingsuits that glide almost as good as canopies. Right. Right. It's crazy. Yeah. I, it, it had me going so much. Uh, I built my first wingsuit in 1974. <laughs> I laid down. I laid down on a bed sheet, <laughs> and and I spread my arms and my legs kind of like a jumping jack. So my arms are way above my head. Right? right. I had my mother trace me out, and I sewed this thing up, and it was basically a wing from my ankle to my wrist, nothing in between the legs. All right. And 90-some people had already died on those early uh, gypsy moth days. Sure. Uh, and a lot of their problems were spinning or not being able to get their handles. Right. So I thought, okay, I'll put a shock cord, a bungee cord in from my ankle to my wrist, and that'll give me flexibility. I'll be able to get my belly mount reserve and pull all my handles if I need be. Sure. So I went out and I jumped this thing. And the bungee cord stretched and stretched and stretched to its max, and then it shrunk. And then it stretched and it stretched to its max and shrunk. So I didn't go anywhere. I just went down. Right. Inflate, deflate, inflate, deflate. <laughs> <laughs> so it, it failed. I only jumped at that one time because I, I didn't really go anywhere. Right. And then uh, in the year 2000, the first modern wingsuits came out. So I bought a uh, Birdman Classic, mm. and since then I've probably made, in the last 20 years, I've probably made five or six belly jumps. It's been nothing but wingsuits for the last 20 years. Oh, that's fantastic. Just, just, I've got $20,000 worth of wingsuits <laughs> up in my pen. <laughs> that's <laughs> the fantastic. The technology keeps changing, you know, you got to play catch up because there's always something new and yeah, better. Yeah, for sure. And, now, you said when you started jumping, you were drafted in the military, so you ended up doing a stint in the military, yeah? Two years, yeah. So how did the jumping play in after that? I mean, you, you get to do that first jump course, but you are still belong to Uncle Sam at that point. So how did you transition into becoming a, a full-blown skydiver? Well, um, after, uh, after uh, I was stationed in Arizona, I ended up in uh, Maryland. Mm. That was about five... 
<clears throat> five hours from uh, my parents' house. I had about two dozen jumps, and the local drop zone in Maryland, uh, their Cessna only went up to 3,500 feet. <laughs> well, the drop zone back at my hometown, they went up to 7,500 feet. Big time. So every weekend, I'd drive the five hours just to go and get that extra altitude and visit my parents and a place to stay and all that. Sure. Um, so I ended up with uh, doing that five hours of travel. Uh, got out, moved back in with my parents. Uh, they thought they'd get me all on track and send me to a tech school and, you know, be a machinist and how it's supposed to be. Right. That didn't happen. They, they forced me into it. I flunked out to show them who was boss. Sure, of course. <laughs> of course. And then they finally resigned to, okay, well, this is what he does, but he's, you know, we're not going to feed him for the rest of his life. He's got to do something. I mean, well, what did they think of that? Because, I mean, you're talking about a time when, I mean, even now, if a kid comes back to mom and dad and says, I want to be a professional skydiver, they're going to be going, what the fuck did we do wrong? But you're talking about back in a time when being a skydiver was just nuts. Who Nobody did this. Oh, they were ashamed of me because the the whole small town, you know, is your crazy son still jumping out of them parachute thingies? <laughs> you know, my son works at Oberg's. He's a machinist. You know, I'm a grandfather, all this stuff. And right. No, they, they weren't happy. <laughs> so uh, 1974, I bought a brand spanking new Volkswagen Beetle. Mm. Back then, a brand new car was $2,000. Can you imagine <laughs> So I bought this brand new car. I took all the seats out except the driver's seat. I built a little home in there and actually lived in there for eight winter seasons. Wow. Eight and years in a VW Beetle. Yeah. Holy shit. Traveled around the country. Uh, uh, I became a, a parachute rigger. Uh, I was one of the first uh, tandem masters before drugs. Yeah, man. I've I've seen some old photos and stuff like that. I can't even imagine what the opening shock must have been like on every single jump. Oh, d brutal. Um, <laughs> Fuck. I, I, I took a guy once. Uh, I'm just a peanut. I'm like 5'6". <laughs> I took a guy that was like 6-something, and he went out, and, and he just went stiff like a plank. <laughs> so we're, we're tracking across the sky at 180 miles an hour. Right. Norm can is next to us filming, trying to keep up, you know. And Mo goes for a ride. I'm hammering and beating on this guy, trying to get him to, you know, arch. There's only one way to stop this, deploy. Right. Boom! Oh, Jesus. Uh, but basically, I, I couldn't take it. I was too small stature, and without the drug, they were controlling me. So yeah. I, I didn't last very long as a, as a TI. Uh, I was one of the first AFF instructors before USPA accepted it. I was part of a trial with uh, New Dimension Flight School in California and Paris. Oh, okay, cool. Um, and these guys, uh, the one guy took his girlfriend and pretty much said, we're going to teach her how to jump by holding on to her <laughs> <laughs> and uh, putting a radio on so we can talk her down later on. Sure. So I was a, a, a part of that. Wow. Wow. Uh, well, and that eventually got pushed into, uh, it was Roger Nelson, wasn't it, that really pushed for F uh, AFF, wasn't he? Yeah. 
Yeah, he took both of his kids when they were four and five years old or yeah. something like that. Yeah, because yeah. I remember I, I talked to uh, uh, Melissa, and she said the same thing, that AFF was not a thing yet, and the USPA was against it. And, and Roger just basically said, fuck you, I'm going to do it the way I want, whether you like it or not. Yeah. Uh, and you know what? That's what I really like. I think he may have been. He may have even been on the USPA board. I know. Uh, I think Bill Doss was at one time, and Bill wanted to do things. Of course, you know Lodi. Yeah, yeah. Oh, Bill man. wanted to do things his way. USPA is like, no, 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 no. And Bill went, well, fuck you. I'll do it myself. <laughs> yeah. You don't have to belong to USPA. You know. <laughs> so. Uh- I wanted to ask because we've exchanged emails back and forth and you always sign off with the same thing, uh, which is a, a statement that most people nowadays in skydiving would cringe at, but it still makes me laugh. You keep saying boogie till you bounce. Boogie till you bounce, yeah. So it's – and I, I want to ask because you come from the original – a generation of skydivers, not parachutists or people that just jumped out of airplanes, but you were a fucking skydiver. Uh, and you came up when the boogies were huge and the World Freefall Convention and people were bouncing a fair amount. And yeah, this yeah. dark sense of humor kind of uh, was all throughout the sport. And of course, nowadays, skydiving's a lot more politically correct than it was. But back then, Boogie Till You Bounce and, and Blue Skies Black Death was just kind of the norm, wasn't it? Oh, yeah. Uh, When we were doing big formations, another one of our sayings was uh, get in or go in. (laughs) Fucking fuck me. Going in was was easier on you than taking the punishment from your, you know, 40 or 50 other buddies saying, you fucker, you didn't get in. Right. (laughs) Get in or go in. Jesus Christ. But, you know, uh, it was almost like laughing at death. And if you think about it, it's happening around us all the time. Um, nothing against, uh, these people, but I know you interviewed some, uh, families and stuff and Mm. how they've balanced in a way like, oh, I'm having a kid and should both of us be in the airplane or, well, do all three of you get in the car together? Sure. You know, uh, when I'm driving a car, everybody's trying to kill me. (laughs) When I'm jumping out of a plane, I'm only trying to kill myself, you know? (laughs) I like that. Well, I mean, you started out, and, and it's still to this day, one of my favorite T-shirts ever in skydiving was, I remember when sex was safe and skydiving was dangerous. Right. And that's when you started, man. I mean, and I, I want to know, because I had the opportunity to talk to uh, Bill Booth uh, briefly on the on the podcast. He did a great episode, and I briefly got into how wild it used to be back in the days. But, I mean, you've seen some shit. I mean, the the boogies and the parties must have been out of control. I believe that I know the guy that coined the term safety meeting. (laughs) Seriously, come on, tell me. Frank Miller, I guaranteed. He was a, my days, these were the hippie days. Right. You know, we all had long hair, bell bottoms, you know. In fact, that's jumpsuits uh, were mainly to protect you from crash landing and whatever. And eventually they became a flying tool. Right. Well, to look cool, people put bell-bottom jumpsuit on. And then they realized that, oh, that extra drag on your legs could give you forward drive. Sure. Let's put them on our arms. So we had these bell-bottom and bell-arm suits that actually had a function to them. Yep. Um, I have no idea where I was going with that. You were about to tell <laughs> me how the safety meeting got started. Oh, Frank, yeah. 
and uh, this was a, a, a hippie guy of mine, and we were getting ready to go up on a jump, and he said, well, shouldn't we get safe first? And they're like, what do you mean safe? He goes, oh, come on down to the van. And we went down to the van and, you know, fired up. Awesome. And it got everybody, you know, got the jitters away from everybody and calmed everybody down and put them all on a <laughs> even keel, so to speak. The only problem is with all these safety meetings, you'd have brain locks because you'd forget what the points were. Right. For sure. <laughs> well, I remember uh, um, Bill telling me one of the best things about learning how to jump in the 60s and 70s was the drugs were better. Yeah. Oh, you knew what you were getting, you know. Yeah, that's what he, he's like. Yeah, it was fantastic. The drugs were much better back then. I mean, so <laughs> the 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 uh, I mean, the events and the parties and the stuff has changed a lot since it was all getting started out, especially because you kind of came up in the 60s. But you've seen the entire progression of the whole sport and the culture behind it. And what's good and what's bad about what's changed to you? Uh. I don't, I don't, I don't see anything bad. I think it's just uh, part of the evolution, mm. just how how things change. Um, I mean, the safety aspect of it is through the roof. It's so much better. Well, again, I think that's just uh, knowledge. Where we have the equipment doesn't fail us anymore. Our mm. brains is what fail us. Sure. Um. So in that respect, uh, the equipment got much safer. Sure. And then the same thing as we go along and people survive and we live from other people's mistakes or deaths or whatever. Sure. Uh, that's all schooling for us, just like it is today. Yeah. Yeah. It's, it's, it's just a different era, but same old shit. You know, when your body hits the ground, you still die. <laughs> it's Nothing's changed. What's the, what's the old, uh, it was the really horrible uh, phrase, grab the grass? Right. <laughs> What was something about hang on so you don't your bones don't shatter your lungs? Yeah, or I think it was. Uh, yeah, if you know you're going to go in, make sure you grab the grass because it's not the first hit that uh, kills you; it's the bounce oh. that gets you. <laughs> the second one bounce, right? Yeah, yeah, yeah. That's that fucked up sense of humor that uh, um, I see it fading a little bit, and it used to be really prevalent in a lot of the writing that I did with Blue Skies, and and I've backed off of it a little bit because people don't seem to enjoy it quite as much. But I still have a very dark sense of humor. Oh, yeah, yeah. No, I love it. And I've, I've shared the magazine with you. I was writing uh, with them since, I think, 2012 or yeah. 13, somewhere in there. Yeah, for sure. And I've always looked forward to your to your fucking pilot articles, for <laughs> sure. Because the thing is, is that's what I like about you, uh, Dean, is you're for real. It's just, yeah, I mean. It's just so much easier not to put up any errors and be for fucking real. Well, I mean, I think you get it though. People see through that shit so quickly when you're trying to pretend. And I, especially in skydiving, I, I always took to skydiving specifically because you got to drop your guard on the drop zone and just be yourself. And you, yep. I mean, you know, more than anything, the sport is a small sport. So you get to know people really, really quick. And so if you all of a sudden start behaving like somebody else, somebody's going to call bullshit and go, fuck you. I remember when you yeah. were wearing that tutu and doing this or that or the other thing. So stop right. trying to, you know, don't be that way. <laughs> so I just never saw the value in, in faking it in the first place. Yeah. Never made any sense. Now, um, we're, I'm going to back you up again. So we, we got through, um, you were going to do the TI thing and you were uh, doing AFF and stuff. But when did you, I mean, you were fully invested 
obviously as soon as you started living in a Volkswagen Beetle <laughs> in skydiving, but how did you make your way in skydiving? Because you're talking about a you know the early '70s. So where did the work come in? How did you how did you survive? Well, um, when I was living in my car, that was for the winters. Hmm. So during the summer, I I had a, a place to stay. Uh, it was either my parents' uh, basement or a garage or something like that. Hmm. And I started uh, buying sewing machines um, and just, I never really had a plan. I just followed my passion and somebody, I was actually packing reserves and doing rigging before I was a rigger. Um, a friend of mine was a rigger and he was helping me pack mine. And eventually I was packing mine and then my buddies would say, hey, will you pack mine? And then I'm there, well, okay. And then I started to realize like, well, if I'm going to take somebody else's ass and put it on the line, I should really be certified and know what the fuck I'm doing. Sure. Uh, so I took uh, one of Dave DeWolf's, uh, the late Dave DeWolf's courses. Uh, he's probably taught more riggers around the world than anybody. Mm. And I was in one of his very first uh, rigging classes. And then just started to gather up sewing machines and started toying and playing. Just, again, no plan. Sure. I ended up building about 70 Wonder Hogs copies. And the Wonder Hog was the predecessor to the Vector. Yeah. So Bill Booth had come out with, uh, you know, a soft pilot chute with no springs on it. Uh, we called them piggybacks at the time, you know, a, a rig that had a main air reserve on your back. Sure. And uh, I tore one apart and I made about 70 of them, totally illegal, no TSOs, just <laughs> made them for my buddies at the drop zone or whatever. Right. I ended up at a Nationals one year and uh, Bill Booth was the equipment inspector. <laughs> so I thought, uh oh, here goes. We're going to see what happens now. Right. Well, at the time, uh, his rigs were so popular as they are today that. It took forever to get one, and um, uh, so he. So he. It, it, I'm trying to picture this. You're walking up and handing him a copy of his design. Well, I am. <laughs> now the sketchy part is he was so busy at the time when you ordered one. It had to be a black harness, and it had to have black binding tape. Mm. You could get colors everywhere else. But that saved him time in production. So you're not changing out sewing machines. You know, you have same fabric. You can pre-make harnesses, stuff like that. Sure. So I show up with a white harness with white binding tape and these colors. And he looked at it and he just went, those fuckers, they're always doing favors for people. That's why we're behind. I'm never hiring skydivers again. And he never looked at the pack and data card or the TSO. He just threw it back in my face and said, get the fuck out of here. <laughs> <laughs> so I actually told him that I think last year at some uh, PIA convention or something, I, I flattered him and told him that I made 70 copies of his rig and told him about that particular incident there. And I guess, uh, you know, 50 years later, he's not too angered about it. Yeah, it'd be <laughs> kind of tough to get mad at this point. But uh, I suppose it's, uh, what is the old saying? It's better to ask forgiveness than permission. <laughs> yes, yeah. So yeah. 70 rigs, man, that's no small chunk of, of cloth to sew together there. That's a big fucking yeah. job. Yeah, and, and um, 
it just snowballed into uh, eventually building uh, base rigs. So I was one of the first uh, manufacturers of base-specific uh, harness container systems. So what, and, now when you did that, were you what were you taking your innovation from just because you knew it was going to be a single canopy system and so you kind of worked around that? Um, well, I made my first uh, base jump at a bridge day and I think it was 82. Okay. And it was pretty much people were skydiving off the bridge with a few modifications. Big sure. pilot shoot, you know, long bridle, uh, mesh slider, something like that. Sure. And I was watching horrible body positions, crappy pack jobs, uh, fuck up after fuck up, and the shit was still working. Right. And I thought, wow, if we had like specially designed gear and if we took a little more attention to detail, this could be at least safer than it is. Sure. Not safe. It's, it's safer than what we're doing. We're right. skydiving off a bridge. No. <laughs> um. Well, at the time, Carl Banish was alive, and uh, as was Jim Handberry, uh, and they came up with a Velcro closed rig. Yep. So it was a container, and they would either uh, zip tie it on to an existing harness or hand tack it on or something like that. Uh, so there wasn't really a um, a rig that was a harness container from scratch. Sure. They were just taking these containers, and there there wasn't that many. It was only Carl and his buddies, so mm. there might have been, if a dozen of those containers out. Wow. And at the same time, they were pretty prehistoric. They were like a foot and a half thick. They were big, bulky, uh, not very aerodynamic mm. containers. So I came out with a, a rig that I called the Edge. And uh, you could get it in black, black, or black with your choice of black. <laughs> Small, medium, or large. Nice. So I could, I could really shit these things out. Sure. And uh, just word spread. I had no website or no techni technology like that. And just word of mouth. I was selling them all over the world. Wow. Well, I mean, base jumping fucking just took off like crazy because I, I the first time I ever saw base jumping in person, I was at the 96, 96 or 97 Bridge Day. I went there with a guy by the name of Will Forche, uh, who hired me to film all the landings. Uh, and so I saw a lot of people that should have been dead that walked away from it. <laughs> Yeah, yeah, and, and all of them on base gear by, or most of them on base gear by then. Uh, but I mean, it just mushroomed and went out of control. You must have been working your ass off if you were basically the first one putting out a container. Well, I was, and then uh, when other people started to see that there was room for competition, uh, it started to happen. So mm -hmm. a handful of other people started uh, doing the same thing. And then when I saw, like, oh, now uh, these guys are having, uh, you can get whatever colors you want, uh, you can get monograms, we became into the look at me uh, generation. <laughs> and it's like, well, these guys, they've got to have every color of the rainbow of thread, every color of the rainbow of binding tape, webbing, you know, now all their money's tied up in stock. I said, you know what? I don't want to compete. Right. So I just backed off and let them have it. Jesus, I mean, come on! You you sewed together uh, the first wingsuit. What year? Seventy four. Seventy four. You sew, sew yourself up a wingsuit. Then you sewed together the first fucking base rig. What didn't you start? <laughs> <laughs> That's awesome. 
Well, um, the same thing with base jumping. It was, uh, you know, pretty uh, egomaniacal. Sure. Uh, and I just couldn't handle those kind of people, the me, me, me generation. So a lot of my base jumps were alone. Mm. Uh, and uh, I grew up uh, as a woodsman, hunting, fishing, trapping, taxidermy, making my own bullets, all that stuff. I was an outdoorsman. So nice. I liked the wilderness base jumps. Mm. Uh, but what I found is I'd be in the mountains and maybe hike for four or six hours and get on top and it's not jumpable and it's not survivable. Right. And do I want to hike back down? Do I take the risk of jumping off? Do I freeze my ass off and try and survive the night? <laughs> um, so I was doing stupid and unsafe things. <laughs> so I came up with a, a rig that I designed and I called it the Parapack. And I just took one of my base rigs and I made it expandable so that it would expand away from your back and give you a storage area about a foot thick. Okay. So yeah. I hike into the mountains and take my tent, stove, sleeping bag, fishing pole, uh, you know, binoculars, first aid kit. Everything I needed, I could survive in the wilderness for five to seven days. <laughs> oh, no shit. And then jump all this shit off. <laughs> Wait, so you're jumping off, you're doing a base jump with your tent on your back? With like another 40 pounds on my back, yeah. <laughs> and then that just turned into, uh, I was taking clients like into Yosemite. I took a 350-pound guy up El Cap for his birthday. Jesus Christ. So it's like a five-hour hike. And I told him, I said, Bill, it's five hours, but we can take five days if we need to. I said, I got everything we need. Home, shelter, food, all that kind of stuff. What do you want? What do you want me to bring for you? Anything special? And he went uh, Twinkies and cigarettes. <laughs> <laughs> so as a joke, I brought Twinkies and cigarettes. So I have a, a picture of him laying in the trail with his shirt up and this big old pot gut belly pulled out of him uh, eating Twinkies and smoking Smoke cigarettes. cigarettes. <laughs> <laughs> Jesus God. Oh man! I mean, so you you. Yeah, please go ahead. Go ahead. So eventually, uh, uh, that system, uh, uh, basic research was one of my competitors at the time mm. uh, in base gear, who is today Apex Base. Yep. Uh, I got together with them. We designed the first actual uh, base specific canopy, and then we co-redesigned my Parapack because it was a Velcro closed rig back then. Mm. It could kill you at terminal if you didn't know what you were doing. Mm. So I only sold them to a handful of my friends who I spent time with in the mountains, and I could hand one-on-one -on -one show them how to not kill themselves with this rig. Mm. Uh, eventually, when Apex and I, uh, Cody, redesigned it, um, it became a pin rig. So they, they manufacture and sell that today. Very cool. And now then I get some... Uh, when you help design the base-specific canopy, and I've never asked this, um, what goes into base-specific as opposed to just a normal skydiving canopy? Well, uh, one of the biggest things is low aspect ratio. The higher aspect ratio, the wider it is, left to right, right. and the narrower front to back, uh, the more chance of off-heading openings. Okay. It's a higher performance. Wing basically, you're taking a sailplane wing opposed to a 
you know, a short chubby, sure. chubby one. Sure. So uh, when Ram Air parachutes came out, we were calling them squares because they were almost square. Sure, <laughs> sure. Front, back, left, or right. Uh, so a base canopy specifically, um, uh, what we were shooting for, we just took the most popular skydiving canopies that were being used at the time, and we beefed them up and made little uh, changes and particulars to those to satisfy our needs in base. Mm. Now, is um, with base-specific canopies, is that kind of what's uh, uh, morphed into the like the wingsuit-specific canopies nowadays? Uh, that's even another, I'd say, subgroup. Okay. Uh, the wingsuit specific canopies, since we're not opening next to the object anymore, uh, and we're jumping in uh, maybe more uh, windy conditions or whatever in the mountains, uh, we want to be able to penetrate and we want to be able to make that landing area. So a wingsuit-specific base canopy might be a little higher performing than your average base canopy that you're going to go into the city and jump off the building with. Sure, sure. So it's, it's kind of like another subgroup, I would say. And now, is all this stuff, especially when it comes to the design stuff, are right. you just kind of learning as you go along through the years? You're just picking up little tidbits here and there, or did you have any formal training prior to? Um. I'd say the community, just feedback from what other people were getting with what we had. Um, in the 80s, uh, uh, I had a consulting job for precision aerodynamics. Um, George Galloway, owner of the company, wanted to produce a reserve packing video. Okay. Which, it was a big deal back then because VHS was like, whoa. <laughs> you know, it's like, wow. Right. We can see. We could see stuff. <laughs> so instead of trying to interpret uh, verbiage on a mimeograph sheet of paper that for packing instructions, George wanted <clears throat> visuals. So he took his Raven reserves and he got all the manufacturers together, uh, UPT, just everybody that had a container system that wanted to be part of the project. And I was the on-camera rigger hmm. to pack George's canopies into those containers. Well, when the job was done, there were 13 reserve canopies there, all identical. And he gave those to me in trade for payment for doing this job. So I had 13 identical Raven 2s. Hmm. So I took them home and I modified them to our standards at the time for base. So at the time, that became a very popular base canopy, partly because it was a reserve, right. but it had a bridle attachment on it. Most reserves don't have a bridle attachment uh, because he was selling his product as you can jump it as a main or a reserve. Hmm. Every time you jump your main, you know what's in your reserve. Sure. Uh, so having that bridle attachment was a, uh, a plus. Sure. I mean... Uh, and then I went on, you know, we came up with more base uh, specific stuff as we have today. So now you you said that uh, um, the last 20 years you've been all about wingsuits. How much base dumping did you get in before you started uh, um, getting back into the sky more or was it an even mix or? Um, I tell people that I skydive to stay current for base jumping. <laughs> I consider myself a parachutist. I use a parachute to save my life, cool. whether it's jumping 
off of or out of. I'm using a parachute to save my life. Nice. Um, so that's kind of uh, the, the way that I looked at it. What was your first base jump? Was bridge day, you said? It was bridge day, yeah. Uh, a friend of mine in California, uh, I was rigging for this guy. And uh, he was a multimillionaire. <clears throat> Uh, he's got a kind of an interesting story. He taught me a lot about life and giving. Uh, he just passed away uh, about a month ago. Oh. Um, he grew up uh, as a little rich kid and had way too much money. Mm. He woke up on his bathroom floor, overdosed from cocaine and tequila, Jeez. almost dead. His pet python was dead from neglect. His pet monkey was dead from neglect. Again, this kid had too much money. Yeah, he did. Well, when his dad realized that my kid's a fuck-up, he cut him off. So now he had nothing. Right. He bought a typewriter for 25 bucks. He and his girlfriend rented a garage. He started an insurance company, became a multimillionaire, uh, got off all the drugs and alcohol and everything like that. Right. Um, this guy, he took two young uh, gangbangers that were going to go to jail uh, he took them off the streets and convinced the judge that he would take care of them. Those two young boys run his company today. They put their siblings through college. Uh, this guy, Ralph, is just, he's an amazing guy. I kept mm. seeing him buy clothing for little girls all the time, and he didn't have a little girl. Right. Well, his best friend had a heart attack and died, and he ended up raising his two daughters. Oh, wow. All this guy did was give back, give back, give back. Well, when he heard about Bridge Day, he goes, hey, what's this bridge thing? Let's go check that out. And I said, Ralph, I don't know anything about that. He goes, you're a rigger, figure it out. <laughs> so we went down there with our skydiving gear, basically modified, and made that one jump. And then that's what enlightened me. Like, this sport needs, you know, base-specific equipment. Sure. So that kind of got the, the ball rolling there as far as. Uh, so when, when you built the first base rig, were you the one doing the test jumping? Uh, it was. Um, it wasn't that big of a deal, though, because the, the shrivel flap, which is Velcro that holds everything shut, mm -hmm. the technology behind that, uh, Jim Hanbury had all f already figured out. So mine was just a more sleek uh, design that was uh, a harness container complete system. Sure. Now, this is back in the beginning of base jumping as well that, I mean... It's obviously still very frowned upon in a lot of places, but back then you were a full-blown fucking criminal if you were going out and flicking buildings and stuff. So, I mean, <laughs> you're trying to run businesses while you're also doing this cloak and dagger stuff as well? Uh, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> you got to love yeah. it. Uh, I've spent my time in jail and been chased by the cops a lot. I was I was chased through the Arizona desert for four hours with a helicopter and a SWAT team with guns for jumping off a bridge. Are you serious? <laughs> what the <Yes>. fuck? <laughs> what now? I, I assume that they caught you with all that. Uh, they did. We my buddies and I had jumped and we were packing on the sandbar below, and this uh, roving sheriff. Right out of the book, this guy's got a, the tan uniform on, the badge, the aviator sunglasses, just yep. Buford. Yep. Uh, I wrote a story in Blue Skies about him, basically, <laughs> named Buford. And uh, he got a, a loudspeaker out and said, come on up, ladies, you're all under arrest. Uh, 
And we looked up and said, okay, when we get packed, we'll come up. And I said to my buddies, he's not going to come down here. We'll just hike up the canyon. We'll sleep in our gear tonight. Might be a little rough, but he's not going to come down here. Right. So we packed up. We started hiking up the canyon. And little did we know, but on both sides of the canyon was a dirt road. <laughs> so the next thing you know, we hear some rocks. We look up. He's up there. Come on up, ladies. We're there. Fuck. <laughs> so we, we go up the canyon further, and it, it teed out to a T. We could go left or right. We went right. Followed this dry, sandy stream bed up and found one lonely mesquite tree, shade. We're in the Arizona desert. Right. So we start to hunker down in there, and we're feeling pretty good about here's where we're going to spend our night. And I hear a helicopter. Jesus. And I'm thinking, surely that's not for us. All we fucking did was jump off a fucking bridge. Come on. <laughs> well, it flies right over top of us. We can see up through the, you know, the glass bottom and the bottom of the, of the bubble. And next thing you know, I hear this crunching. Guy comes up over the hill in a SWAT uniform with the gold SWAT letters on his hat, gun out. Come on out, ladies. What the fuck? I come out with my hands up. I said, sir, what did we do that was so wrong that you're pointing a gun at me? <laughs> and right then the, the sheriff showed up and he went, you jumped off my bridge. I went, okay, okay, put the gun away, you know. <laughs> Jesus Christ, man. That's a, that's a bit over the top. A little bit. <laughs> yes. Oh, so they chilled out a little bit and uh, ended up paying a big fine for that, uh, you know, going to court. Oh Jesus! Well, it just, yeah. none of that makes sense. I mean, I remember hearing the the story of of Frank after he had jumped off of El Cap, landed, and was running away from the Rangers because he didn't want him to uh, take his gear, and of course he ended up drowning in the Merced River. What the fuck? Yeah. I mean, right. all because he jumped off a cliff, which people fall off of climbing all the damn time. Right. I don't understand that stuff. Now, you said that you did a lot of your base jumping backcountry and you did some pretty sketchy shit. I got to hear there's got to be a number one on that list. What was the just the outright <laughs> stupidest fucking thing you did? Uh, there's probably a lot of ties in there. <laughs> I'll, I'll take the top two. <laughs> I'll tell you what. My first wingsuit base jump was pretty scary. <laughs> okay. Uh, terrain flying, proximity flying. There wasn't even a name for that yet. It didn't exist. Right. And my first wingsuit base jump, that's what I did, not by choice. <laughs> oh, no, 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 no. So I had a Birdman Classic, which was a very small suit. Sure, I remember uh, it. Had plenty of skydives on it, felt good with it. I went up to uh, Half Dome in Yosemite. Uh, the vertical on Half Dome is about 1,800 feet, and then there's a 3,000-foot uh, talus. And it's about a 60 degrees, roughly, slope. Hmm. And it steps down in like three steps, like three three layers. And uh, uh, went up there with my uh, parapack system. So not only did was my first wingsuit jump, I have 40 pounds extra on my back, <laughs> a very non-aerodynamic container. You know, it's a foot thick. Right. And uh, exiting at 10,000 feet, so the density altitude, yep. you know, has a lot to do with your launch point, launch and everything. I launched off there, ended up going head down. I'm there, ah, oh, fuck, this isn't going to work. Right. And I thought, well, when I pull out, it'll be a regular jump, and I'll just deploy. Well, when I pulled out of the dive, 
you know what happens then. It converts into horizontal, and the fucking thing took off. Sure. So here I go. All right, I'm flying. Uh-oh, I've got to clear this ridge. So it's either like I have to pull or I have to clear the ridge. And I could see that, okay, I'm going to clear it. I cleared it. Now I'm in this belly of this first step. And it's like, here comes the next one. I'm either going to hit it or I go to pull. Same thing. I hung in there, cleared the second ridge. Third one's coming along. Same thing. I've either got to clear it, just barely got over it. As soon as I got over it, I deployed because the next thing is the earth. Yeah. <laughs> so I uh, deployed, barely made it to my landing area. So that was a pretty scary, sketchy one there, I'd say. I'm just picturing like the camping gear rattling around on your back as you're <laughs> trying to clear these steps, like the little uh, metal fork and spoon in the cup. And <laughs> right. Impact and the, 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 the gas container explodes. You know? Yeah, dude. That's Talk about burning in, right? He burned in. <laughs> that's fucking great. That's like something you'd see in a Looney Tunes cartoon, man. <laughs> the, the skydiving when the the fucking road runner and the coyote jump out and pull the handle and all the dishes and shit would come out right, right. <laughs> <laughs> oh man oh man how the fuck are you still alive with that if that's like not even if there's ties to that story like there's better ones than that Oh, I, yeah, I mean, I just off the top of my head, I don't even, I'd have to like really dig through my logbook <laughs> or something. I, don't know. I mean, all right, so I get that, uh, um, that you had this rig designed to be able to do this outback stuff, but did you not think that perhaps that might negate the whole wingsuit part of it? Well, I did. I mean, I was a, a hang glider pilot in 1974 as well, so I, <laughs> I knew about aerodynamics and flight and all that. Um, so you knew this was fucking crazy. Well, I, I knew that it wasn't going to be efficient. <laughs> it just wasn't a good idea to jump my first wingsuit with, you know, 40 pounds on my back right. and a, a brick. Oh, wow. That's fucking so awesome. That was just a, a bad choice. And of course, luck. Sure. Yeah. Well, now um, have has all your uh, jumping or the primarily most of your jumping been in the States or have you been abroad uh, doing base jumping around the world as well? Um, yeah, my main focus is wingsuiting now. So uh, the last few years I've, I've gone abroad, uh, didn't get to last year because COVID, they wouldn't, you know, let us out of the country. Of course. And I'm Jones and like a big dog. Sure, sure. <laughs> uh, but that's pretty much my, you know, my true love is is wingsuiting and uh, in the mountains. So now tell me, uh, you, you've picked a sport that uh, is primarily a, a younger man's sport, although a lot of the, the OG guys that got it all going are still going strong in their 40s and stuff. Uh, but you're a little bit older than that, and you're still going hardcore. What do all these young bucks think of this? Um. I don't think they think because I think they were just doing what I was doing when I was younger. Uh, you know, age wasn't it, it. It didn't have anything to do with what we were doing. Sure. It, you know, the, I, a lot of the people that I looked up to that were ten years, fifteen years older than me, and still doing it. Uh, I think part of doing it is what keeps you young. Sure. Oh no, I completely agree. I absolutely agree. I mean, uh, it's. This is a, that's probably my favorite thing about the sport is age seems to be completely irrelevant to most people. But I got to wonder when you're standing up on top of the cliff with, you know, a bunch of uh, 21 year olds or 18 year olds anymore that are getting ready to do all this stuff. They must be going, shit, he's been, he's been around a little while. 
<laughs> I don't know for sure, but I'm I'm guessing that I'm probably the oldest wingsuit base jumper, oldest active, let's say, wingsuit base jumper out there. I don't know too many people that are 69 years old that are still hucking themselves off mountains. <laughs> exactly, but that's fucking epic. I mean, it, it, that's the thing, right? Is is uh, you really, I think it's that kind of thing that keeps you young. It's certainly that thing, that type of thing that keeps you mentally young because you're still doing the same shit that you were doing when your parents were trying to disown you. Yeah, and I think uh, hanging out with the young kids keeps you young too. For sure, for sure. It's, uh, um, uh, I, I tend to, uh, um, funny enough, I've slowed down a lot more than you have. I tend to live a little bit more vicariously through other people, especially when it comes to the base jumping stuff. I never got bit by that particular bug about the time I was thinking that might be cool. I became a dad and kind of shut that one off. Uh, and now honestly, I'm, um, it doesn't really grab me too much except to watch all my friends do it. Uh, so I'm happy to watch guys like you do it and go out and go balls out. Cause I just sit there shaking my head going, Oh fuck. <laughs> I'm still doing that because I'm, I'm pretty conservative. Mm. You know, I'm, I'm still, you know, these guys flying through the caves and doing all this insane stuff. It just totally blows me away. So, flying black into airplanes. <laughs> right. Right. Now let me ask you, cause you've kind of seen both sides of it. You started skydiving back when, um, I mean, fatalities used to be part of a low pull contest for fuck's sake. Um, and now you, you move into this hardcore, uh, terrain flying and wingsuiting. And there's a huge rash of fatalities a few years back. I mean, really, really bad numbers in base jumping, um, specifically with the wingsuits is there is it a mentality thing is it because you've seen so much of it is it the same kind of mentality just different gear that it was back in the day um i i think from my own point of view is is my the way i look at death mm. you know i i, I pretty much uh, i, I want to be as safe as i can and everything but you can only do so much so uh the way i look at it is is uh, that's how we learn with these mistakes and death. Um, sure. when I started skydiving, uh, before that I was a, a woodsman and my telephone book was all my hunting buddies and fishing buddies. Well, they all went to the wayside and I got a new phone book <laughs> and it turned into skydiving. Sure. Well, I have that today. Uh, this will be my, uh, 50th, uh, year if I live till November uh, fucking, of skydiving. fucking congratulations, man. I just, but this, this is my 25th year. So I'm exactly half of, of what you've halfway. got going. I'm halfway there. <laughs> fucking hell. Um, so, uh, my outlook, you know, was with the, you know, the whole death and all that kind of stuff was, that's just part of progression. Sure. Um, sure. it's tough so though. I, I, I mean, you've you've had to have seen a whole lot of loss in your time, though. I mean, how well how'd you get that telephone book, that telephone book that I had, and I have today. Uh, there's probably very close to a dead person on every page, every letter of the alphabet. Wow. Mostly, mostly in those early days of base jumping. Sure. You know, sure. there's the typical car wrecks and heart attacks and stuff like that, but. Uh, you know, it's a, a jump telephone book, and just about everybody in there for the last, you know, decades it, are dead. Yeah. yeah. I mean, that's 
Has there ever been a time when you're scratching your head going, you know something, I don't know if this is for me anymore? I've had people that have, have walked away from the sport because they couldn't handle losing people anymore. But my mentality always was, even if I stop jumping tomorrow and never go to a drop zone again, I'm still going to lose people because I've spent 25 years of my life in the sport. Right. Yeah. Um, life is death in slow motion. <laughs> That's a good way to put it. We're, we're, we're all we're all dying. Yeah. And the way I see it is we're all in this big, long line. <laughs> and every time somebody dies, we take one step forward until it's our turn. Sure. So, um, you know, that one year where we had like 16 base jumpers die in like a few months. Yeah. I wasn't taking one step forward. I was almost fucking jogging, you know? It's like, <laughs> holy shit, I'm getting close. <laughs> close. That, uh, I never thought about it that way. That's actually a really fucked up way to look at it. <laughs> holy shit. Uh, I mean, don't get me wrong. The, I guarantee there's a fuckload of fun happening in that line, though. <laughs> oh, yes. Uh, you know, part of my outlook on this whole death uh, thing was, I think... Uh, when I was living in my car, uh, I spent a lot of winters in uh, Coolidge, Arizona. Yeah. And that was before, you know, the big Eloy and all that. Um, we called it Goolidge <laughs> because all the ghouls held out there. Uh, people were dying there left and right. Uh, again, these were the hippie days. Sure. Uh, you could get <clears throat> a thing that was called the Monty and Link Skullcrest Award. There was a guy, two guys, Monty and Link. These guys went in in a two-way, smiling at each other on acid. <laughs> and so they were Monty and Link, a Skullcrest Award, number one and two. <laughs> well, if you wanted to get the number, you had to go in. <laughs> <laughs> so I never knew of any threes or fours or anything after that. But <sighs> the way this little community at Goolidge laughed at death, these guys carried around, I don't know if you've ever seen it, but if you haven't, I'll send you the picture. They, these guys carried around a real human arm from the shoulder down to the fingertips. And it was petrified. It was like a piece of beef jerky, all stringy and straggly. And these guys would carry this thing around to all the meats. They would take it into restaurants and twirl and eat spaghetti with it. They would snort cocaine off the fingers. Uh, they carried this arm around. They'd stick it in the pea gravel with a ripcord in it. So I have that picture. I'll, I'll send it to you. Please. Uh, but these guys just, that, that was just part of what? Boogie Toya Mounts. It was, it was. Whose arm was it? Never. I never really knew. They said that somebody dug up an Indian grave. Somebody said it was a dead skydiver. I never got a solid. Uh, I mean. A real real story on it. it it's it's funny because obviously having a slightly darker sense of humor i i think that's pretty fucking funny i personally wouldn't walk around with a severed arm but i, I would laugh at the <laughs> stories and i'll certainly laugh at the picture but this is also the generation of blue skies black death which is a, a I, I got a, in an argument online once about that statement because i am a fan and a user of that statement i'm I, usually i just say blue skies but i mean the entire thing blue skies black death yeah. uh and someone uh was giving me shit or giving somebody else shit for using it saying it was antiquated and it's bullshit and it doesn't mean anything and i vehemently disagreed um uh, 
you know, I was I, I was downright pissed off. I'm like, look, this is saying Blue Sky's Black Death to me is the same as telling some a, a good friend that I love him. If I mean what it means, then it's a perfect thing to say. Um, yeah. And it, it just kind of encapsulated the earlier skydiving mentality that I think I don't think it's lost. I think it just is not quite as in your face as it used to be. For me, yeah, no, I, I I agree. I think um, again, it's like uh, how do you look at life? What mm. is life? How do you value it? How do you define it? Mm. And that's my definition. Life is death in slow motion. You know, <laughs> as soon as you're scored out, you're dying already. <laughs> is, is it going to be a long? You know, are you going to die at birth or are you going to die at ninety? Right, right. Oh man, I mean, it's we're all going. I think yep. we're just, uh, um, especially as skydivers or as people that uh, do things that the normal people, so to speak, uh, consider more extreme. We're just kind of sucking the most out of life while we can. Yeah. At least I think so anyway. So now you sent me the coolest fucking jerseys. You sent me a couple of cool t-shirts and a bunch of awesome stickers that say tailored for survival. Where did this come from? Well, again, uh, two of those years I was living in my car with my girlfriend. <laughs> wait, in a, wait, to, hang on, stop. You got a girlfriend to live in a VW b- Beetle, not a bus, a yes. Beetle with you yes. for two years. I took this girl away from a $100,000 a year job <laughs> and moved her into a VW Bug. <clears throat> and her dad said, have fun, honey. Because his wife died at a young age. And he said, hey, if you want to live and go out and live and enjoy it, do it. Jesus. Dude. He said, when you get to Arizona, he said, call me up. I'll fly out. Put me up a tent. (laughs) I have a picture. I have a picture of three of us in this Volkswagen Beetle. (laughs) He stretched out on the bed. She's all curled up in the back. Would put him up a tent. and, And he just loved it because he knew his daughter was truly living and alive, oh, not wow. just existing and rotting away, waiting to die or collect, you know, that big bank account. Yep, yep, yep. Shit, man, if I uh, had a hat on, I, I would take it off to you. <laughs> That's fantastic. <laughs> anyway, I stopped your story. So you're, you're living in, in a VW Beetle with a girl for two years, and we were talking about the Taylor for survival. Yeah, I wanted to come up with a a good name for the – for my business, basically, if you want to even call it that. <clears throat> and again, not wanting to be Moe's Parachutes, because I was working on uh, hot air balloon repairs. Uh, you know, I was sewing up just about anything. You know, my mom's broken bras, whatever needed fixed, I was sewing. <laughs> right. So I didn't want to be limited <clears throat> to the parachute industry. But I wanted it to relate to custom, and that's how we came up with Tailored. And then something that had to do with life support, survival. So I pretty much credit her to uh, to that. fucking such a great story for a name. (laughs) It it really is. And it transitions back to how in the hell did you get, with Tailored for Survival, a gig designing something that's shredding vehicles and stuff for the military? How did that happen? (laughs) How did they know to come to you to do this? Um, Again, it was just... a lot of word of mouth. Uh, I don't know how that one exactly happened. Uh, they may have gotten the info through the wind tunnel that they were at. Uh, 
that's just, I mean, it's fantastic. And it, I'll tell you what, it's one of the coolest things uh, that I get talking to all the different people is getting such a bizarre uh, kaleidoscope of different backgrounds and different shit that skydiving has taken people to that you would never expect. I would never expect that you'd end up designing, you know, basically, you know, hardware for the military because you decided to jump out of an airplane one day. Right. And yeah. It's fucking great. <laughs> and and again, there was no uh, no plan or not searching for anything, just loving what I was doing. <sighs> never worried about, like, how am I going to pay the rent or do, you know – all I needed was a place for me and a place for my sewing machines. Nice. In fact, uh, in 1991, I bought a brand spanking new Honda Civic, took all the seats out of it, lived in that <laughs> full time for three years. All right. <clears throat> well, I needed a home for my sewing machines. Well, Square One was just uh, starting to blossom and become bigger. So they rented out this big warehouse. And they had their, their office and business area up front, and in the back was all their stock. Well, they had all this extra room back there. So I, I made a deal with uh, Kate and Tony at the time. They knew I was going to die base jumping. <laughs> they said, this guy's, this guy's crazy. He's doing stupid shit. He's going to die. So I made a deal with them. I said, look, if you let me have my shop, give me a space in the back of your uh, – building there for free and i can pull my car in there um uh if if, if you do that <clears throat> i will will everything i own to you <laughs> all my sewing machines everything that i have i will write out a will if i die it's all yours and they went oh hell yeah he's gonna die tomorrow <laughs> right now fuck her up <clears throat> So I handed out a, a contract and a will, basically, and I won. I'm still alive. <laughs> yeah, do a, I'll tell you what, though. You're the type that is going to outlive everybody. <laughs> it's And it's not going to be because you tried. It's going to be because you tried really hard not to outlive everybody and just kind of accidentally did. <laughs> That's what's going to happen. I, I, probably right. Yeah. I, again, I, I, no plan. I don't know what's happening tomorrow. I just want to get in the plane or get back on the rock. That's awesome. Now, when throughout this entire uh, career and life did uh, mom and dad accept or embrace what you did, or did they ever? Um, I think when it really kicked in is is when I got into Hollywood and started doing stunts and and movie jobs because success to people from the uh, Depression era. You know, my both my families came from coal mines and, mm. you know, no education and all that. They only want education and money for their kids. So when they finally saw, like, whoa, he's making money, you know, and the whole hometown now is like, oh, your son's a movie star. <laughs> Before I was the crazy fucker jumping out, you know, out of them, their parachutes. Right. Uh, I think that might have kicked in then. But even before that, they saw that I, I loved what I was doing. Fair enough. And I, I, I think they kind of got it, but they were always concerned about, he doesn't have insurance, you know, <laughs> what happens and the money and... Of course. Understandable. Oh, yeah, generation. absolutely. Now, how did the Hollywood stuff start? Um, Tom Sanders, a uh, world-famous aerial cinematographer, 
uh, I ended up doing a couple of jobs for him. My first one was um, actually how I got my Screen Actors Guild, uh, my SAG card. Uh, again, base jumping was just coming of age. Uh, he got a contract uh, for Mountain Dew, and it was a base jump into uh, the Little Colorado, a tributary of the Grand Canyon. And on that job, uh, he hired me as uh, safety. Okay. And uh, a friend of mine who is better looking and better for a Mountain Dew character to be on camera, uh, Matt McCarter, he was going to do the actual jumps. But my deal with uh, the production company was uh, I get to jump as well. Whether I'm on camera or not, I don't care. But I want to get my SAG card out of this. Mm. So that's how I ended up getting into the Screen Actors Guild, and that was one of my first uh, first jobs, basically. Awesome. And then Tom was getting a lot of stuff at the time, skydiving and base jumping. So I did a lot of uh, uh, ground crew safety or any uh, specialty rigging for uh, a lot of his jobs. Ended up doing about a dozen feature films, about two dozen uh, TV commercials, and... Uh, television shows specials well, you did a couple of big films didn't you um drop zone was was the the big one <laughs> and that was if i'm not mistaken was this not the base jump through the glass window it was <laughs> please tell the that story was, that was 1994 please well um i was hired on that job uh, to double as michael jeter uh, short, balding, nerd, computer nerd-looking guy. Uh, and uh, what they did is this guy, uh, 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 he ended up making a lot of tandem jumps. Mm. They would tandem tandem jump him into uh, the top of buildings, and they'd break into the computers and all that. He was the, the nerd. Right. So I was hired initially to be a tandem passenger, uh, to make these jumps. And we're landing in, you know, downtown Miami. We're landing in downtown LA. We're landing on roofs of buildings. A lot of, you know, night jumps, uh, jumping out over the ocean, just a lot of crazy stuff. There were no base jumps in the original script of the movie Drop Zone. And uh, as time went on, the producers saw one of Tom Sanders' uh, uh, little put-together films mm. and Part of it was me jumping off some buildings. And they went, who is that guy? And they went, yeah, that's that little shit over there. And uh, they came over to me and said, we were in Miami at the time, and they said, uh, so you do this base jumping stuff, right? And I'm there, yeah. And they said, do uh, you think you could jump off that building over there? <laughs> and I said, well, I've been here for a month, and I've already picked the locks to the roof of that building, that building, the one I'm staying in. <laughs> And the conditions haven't been good because we have this city that heats up during the day, all this concrete and, and glass and everything, next to a cool ocean. So there's always this heating, cooling. Even if it's not true wind, there's some sort of circulation. Mm. And base jumping in the city, I've got hundreds of building jumps, and rarely any of them have any wind at all. Mm. And I think that's a big part of why I'm still alive is – a lot of people spend hours sneaking in, getting to the top, and now it's too windy, and it's like, well, fuck, uh, uh, what could go wrong? You know, you rationalize your way into it. Right. 
you know, I was that guy that either didn't go up or I climbed back down. Nice. So I knew how to say no. And that's what I told him. I said, I've been trying to jump these buildings, so you're dreaming. If you think we're going to get this jump off, when you say action, I'm going to say, fuck you, because <laughs> <laughs> it's not safe. Right. I said, so it doesn't matter how much money you're going to throw at me. I'm going if it's safe. If you guys want to try it, we'll try it. And they said, well, we'll go through the plan, and if it doesn't work, we'll go to a, a city inland later on and do it where the conditions aren't as unstable. So the the story goes, um, they're trying to find one of the characters right. named Swoop. <laughs> the, the original screen, uh, the original um, scene, is a couple jumpers land on the New River Gorge Bridge, and they're trying to find this Swoop guy. They know he hangs out there, and they look over the railing and they see him hanging hanging out down there. He's uh, bathing, sun naked, <laughs> uh, sunbathing naked. Right. And they talk him into getting on the team, and uh, as he goes to climb up to join these guys, he falls off backwards, and a bungee saves his life. Hmm. So that was the introduction to that character. Right. And they said, well, we want to change this. We want him to be a window washer. And the guys uh, go up in this building, and they're you know yelling for swoop, 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 and they see him washing windows. And we want you to do that, and then when you, when you decide to join the team – we want you to turn around and base jump off. Can you do that? Well, yeah. So we spent two weeks setting up the uh, scaffolding. During those two weeks, it was never jumpable. Mm. The winds were just, it was never there. Uh, the night before the jump, uh, I had hired uh, Patrick Swayze's brother, Don. He was one of my students. Mm. Uh, he was going to be the actual on-camera guy, and I was doing a, a belly mount. Uh, camera jump and they were doing a long shot of me and they could uh, erase out the camera and stuff sure um, I got him hired on because he looked close to who the actor was and we were packing our rigs that night just laughing that we're not jumping tomorrow you know just we're gonna get paid our our uh, you know $500 a day fee for doing nothing right so uh, and who who knows how long they're gonna hold out until you know it happens or it doesn't but we'll take it right uh, the late Gus Wing came in while we were packing, and he said, you're not going to believe it. I was over at the building. It's dead calm. There's a big black bird flying around the top, not even flapping or anything. He said, it's, it's perfect out there. Next morning, we got up. The winds and everything were perfect. Made the jumps. As soon as we were done, the winds picked up. Game over. <laughs> oh, man. Perfect timing. So that was jumping off the scaffolding. So at the end of the movie, they decided to change the, the end of the movie as the final kill scene. Right. And that's where uh, they land on the roof of uh, a building. There's a, a big fight and everything. The one guy still has his uh, reserve parachute on, Wesley Snipes. Yep. Uh, there's a big fight. He and Gary Busey come face to face. They're both out of bullets, and there's a fight. And during that fight, Busey – or uh, Snipes tackles Busey, crashes through a glass window from 300 feet, deploys his parachute, and drops Busey into an oncoming vehicle. Yeah. <laughs> can you can you do that? Yeah. Well, I always say yes. Then I have to fucking figure it out. Right. So how the fuck am I going to do this? <laughs> <laughs> uh, so like any stunt, uh, you break it down. You know, like uh, needed to figure out, okay, well, what do I use for a dummy? 
uh, how am I going to deploy? Tell me about glass. I knew nothing about crashing through glass. So right. um, a lot of people think that you use uh, the sugar glass, the candy glass. Mm. Uh, well, if you're getting a, a whiskey bottle broken over your head, that's what they use. Mm. But if you have a big pane like that, a four by eight sheet of glass, uh, if you're crashing through that, there's no way to control the size of the chunks. Okay. So I could go out and deploy and have a good canopy and this, you know, 20 pound chunk of sugar come through my canopy <laughs> and take me out. Sure. So they said, well, we can do it with real glass. And there's a couple different ways to do that. Uh, they'll put explosive charges on the real glass, and there will be a guy uh, standing parallel next to that. And right before I hit the glass, he blows it up. Okay. So I'm not actually breaking the real glass. Right. The glass is also tempered to a point where uh, the p pieces, when it shatters, are dime to quarter size. So it's cons it's consistent. Sure. I'm not going to have this big chunk coming out. <laughs> right. So I asked them, I said, uh, these explosion things, do they ever fail? And they go, oh, yeah, all the time. <laughs> and I said, well, I'm going to be running from like 20 feet back, and I'm going to hit a solid chunk of glass, break it, and then drool down the building, right? <laughs> and then uh, Swayze chimed in, and uh, it happened to him once. He was supposed to get shot with a gun and back into the glass and go through the window, and it didn't break. And he fucked up his shoulder mm. well the other method is they'll temper the glass and then they can hit it with a sharp object like a punch and hopefully it will shatter but not fall out and then uh just by running through it there's no force or anything sure. or sometimes when they go to crack it it just falls out anyway or if somebody opens or closes the door or sneezes or whatever sure it might not make it so I went to the glass factory, figured all that out, uh, got like six practice sheets to run through that I could practice running through with this dummy. And uh, I just couldn't get it. I, I could get through and crash, but I knew that once I went through this glass, I was going to hit the, the gym mat. Right. And this dummy was like 40 pounds. It had a hard head. And I had to protect myself when I impacted the ground, so I, I I couldn't get the next mental picture in my mind as to the visual imagery of how I wanted it to be. Sure. I needed a little bit of hang time. So one of my buddies, uh, uh, I put on a climbing harness with an attachment uh, between my shoulder blades. Right. He had a climbing harness on. The rope went from his harness up through a pulley in the ceiling and back down to me. Okay. So he would be standing next to the window, and then when I would run towards the window, he would run away from the window towards <laughs> me. So that when I went through the glass, his weight would suspend me for that microsecond and give me that visual and that feeling that I needed. Sure. So after doing a few of those, that's that got me to where I needed to be. <sighs> I mean... So you're not sure if the glass is going to break the way that it needs to. Um, you're not really sure how you're going to get out the window with the dummy, and you're then you're just base jumping. Well, but I broke those things down to now I know what's going to happen. Sure. I know the glass is going to break because we've proven that. Right. 
you know, I know that my body position will be good because I had the, you know, the practice, able to practice that and do that. Now it's just a matter of doing it. So how did the actual jump go? Well, they had, I think, five cameras going from different angles, some of which were uh, to be done in slow motion. Okay. So if you're doing slow motion, that means the film is going really fast. Right. Uh, so there might be only like one minute of film, you know, in, in the in the camera. Mm. So when we practiced, uh, they would say, uh, ground crew ready, uh, camera one. Camera one, confirm back, rolling. Camera two, rolling. Cam- well, by the time we got all this feedback and everything, there might have been like 20 seconds left right. for me to make the jump. So it was critical. So we practiced that over and over and over and over again. When it came time to do the jump the next day, uh, overnight, the producers thought, oh, we can save some time. We don't have to, We can crack the glass first and then get the cameras rolling. They were getting the cameras rolling and then cracking the glass. That was eating up precious time. Sure. Sure. Well, the fact that we had practiced over and over and over the original method, when it came time to do the real thing, they got confused. All I needed to hear when I was getting ready to go was, uh, go when you're ready, Mo. There was a camera or a radio in front of me, a buddy of mine. Mm. And that's all I needed to hear. So I hear, go when you're ready, Mo. I pick up the dummy. I start to go. And I hear, stop, stop, stop. No, 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 no. My buddy jumped back in front of me. No cameras were rolling. <laughs> they were paying $20,000 for this shot. It doesn't get cheaper the second time around. No. You know, you want to do it again? I'll do it again. <laughs> <laughs> Jesus. So I had no clue what was going on. So now my whole, you know, mentality and everything is like, you just big threw a big wrench into my gears. Right. So I have to admit, I was a, a little bit amped at this point now once they cleared everything up and it was go when you're ready mo i crashed through the window i ended up going a little bit head low and the dummy was dragging me down well one of my feet caught a a steering line on deployment and i was lucky that the canopy still opened on head heading Mm. um and it just kind of uh the luck factor. Sure, uh, sure. I think there's there's luck in everything we do, especially in skydiving and base jumping and driving cars and stuff like that. Sure, it's, it's, sure. You know, we're all lucky that we're here right now. Uh, so I pretty much lucked out on that one. Oh man, it's funny that uh, um, that you mentioned <laughs> that particular jump and uh, that movie and Point Break. Obviously, yeah. from my generation of skydivers, those were the two movies that I saw and was like, okay, I got to fucking do that. And uh, um, both of them, of course, you look back at them now and I get a good giggle out of both movies because when right. you're not a skydiver, you have no idea that that's not how things are. You know, use your arms, Johnny, fly like an eagle. They're talking back and forth in that movie and, <laughs> you know, everything that happened in Drop Zone, and but you don't know. And then you get into skydiving and eventually look back at those movies and go, oh, Jesus Christ. <laughs> Right, right, right. But then you hear about the stories of what went into making those movies are so much more intense than the movies themselves. Well, at least on Drop Zone, um, um, John Badham, the the producer of that, he's known for high adventure movies, and he's known for doing stunts as close as possible without 
cheating it sure. with, you know, uh, with camera, with uh, digital and stuff like that. Right. So that was the interesting thing about the movie Drop Zone. Most of the crazy shit that you see on there was actually done. <laughs> it wasn't it wasn't faked. Which is like the raps. Are you kidding? I, I watched oh, yeah, yeah. I watched that movie a couple of years back and I'm like, Jesus Christ, they're intentionally yeah. wrapping somebody up in their I mean, my God. Yes. <laughs> Mental. Yeah. Uh <laughs> And again, the breakdown for that, you know, um, uh, Guy Manos was intentionally rapping uh, Utah Steve. Uh, he'd go up and rap him and back off and then re-rap him and back off and re-rap him. Um, the producers wanted uh, him to get rapped and then cut away. And then he's supposed to have this crash landing. Right. Well, it's like, okay, uh, we've made, we took an old, an old canopy I sewed a pair of goggles into these canopies, and then after Steve opened, he could dress himself in this canopy and put the goggles on. That way he could see with having this canopy all over his head and face and everything and still perform his uh, crash landing. Sure. So there's a lot of little hidden things in behind there that the little rigging tricks and things that we did along the way. I'm going to have to watch that movie and pay really close attention this time. <laughs> Like really close attention because that's it's those little stories that are fucking fantastic. You sewed goggles into the canopy. Still though, he's flying a parachute with another parachute wrapped around him. Yeah, yeah. I mean, <laughs> yeah, a little bit of luck goes one, into that one, kind of stuff. Yeah, one area where they wanted us, <clears throat> they wanted us to deploy all at the same time without tracking oh. on on a couple of jumps. We said, look, we we just can't. That's just too risky. We can't do that. That's something you're going to have to fake. The best we can do is when I see a deployment bag leave a container, I'll throw my pilot chute. Hmm. And, and that's still sketchy. Sure. Because he might have a snivel. I might have a hard opening. Now we're on the same level. Cabango. Yep. You know? uh, but as a stuntman, you're, you take certain risks. Sure. But we're not all going to dump in a clump. That's no. for sure. Now, uh, Snipes, did he learn how to jump for that movie? Because I knew he learned how to fly at least to do the wind tunnel scenes. But he did a, he did some jumping, didn't he? He did. Um, uh, he wasn't like Swayze because I mean Patrick Swayze did all his own jumps for for the original Point Break, but uh, not all. But yeah, he did it. He did some. Yeah, but no. Uh, yeah, Swipes Snipes did jump, as did uh, Michael Jeter, the guy I was doubling for, the nerd. Yeah, he had about sixty jumps. Oh wow. Um, and. Uh, they didn't want him to jump, though, because if he got injured, that just fucks everything up. Sure. Um, but one day, they pulled me aside, and they said, listen, uh, <clears throat> we want you to get all dressed in full wardrobe and everything and be ready. Michael Jeter is actually going to make a tandem, which wouldn't have been, wasn't a big deal with, with him, but still, the producers didn't want that to happen. Right. But the, the, the guys in between were going, if the producers show up, we want them to think that it was you. So Michael Jeter goes up and makes this jump. Well, every day at the end of the day, they send the film to New York. It's called Dailies. Right. They send them out to make sure they got the shot. If they didn't get the shot, they shoot it again. Well, at the Dailies, they, the camera's right in Michael Jeter's face on exit. Norm Kent's just, you know it's not me. Yeah. Well, the producers saw that and said, what the fuck? 
And they said, Michael, we liked it, but just please don't do it again. <laughs> the stunt guy's disposable. You're not. Yes. <laughs> so he actually ended up making a jump. And I think we took one of the, uh, I think we took one of the second unit directors nice. on a jump as well on a tandem. So he thought like, he can do this. Sure. He's got six skydives. There's no reason it's safe, you know? <laughs> sure, sure. Well, it's funny because, I mean, even now, um, <clears throat> I know that if actors and actresses are under contract at the time and they happen to be near a drop zone, there's been a few times that I've tried to get people that were working, doing filming and stuff, and they're like, I'd fucking love to go jump, but I can't. I'm under contract. Yeah, yeah. They won't let them take the risk. Which, fair enough, I mean, but especially now, these movies are, you know, God knows how many millions of dollars to produce these things, so I suppose you don't want your actor going and snapping themselves. They they didn't even want uh, Snipes riding his motorcycle. Really? But he did. Uh, in fact, he, he was a really, really cool guy. He invited us all over to his place for a party. <laughs> nice. And that's rare that, that an actor invites, you know, the lowlifes over, but... He understood sky. He knew skydivers. He knew who we were, how we acted, how we looked at, you know, our perspective on life and stuff. Sure. He, he had a lot of that too, just being a, a motorcycle guy and sure, and too. So he, he he got us. That was another funny thing about that movie in particular too. Looking back on it, I remember when I watched the movie originally, thinking that the characters that um, they were the way that they were portraying skydivers before I was a skydiver. I'm like, people can't actually act like that. And then, of course, they became a skydiver and went, oh, actually, those are pretty mellow personalities. <laughs> right. <laughs> By comparison, I'm like, that's actually pretty chill. <laughs> so right. for anybody listening, if you have not seen the movie Drop Zone, you have to check it out. It's, if nothing else, it's a fucking good laugh, but it's actually a really fun movie. And now you're listening to somebody that did some stupid shit to make it happen. So you need to, you need to check it out. <laughs> Now, it, it it is a pretty hokey story, but this like like I said, most of the stunts were for real. Nice. Very little stuff was fake. So, as a jumper, you can at least appreciate that. For sure. Well, I was lucky enough uh, uh, years and years after I'd started skydiving, I had uh, the TV show Mythbusters came out to skydance when I was jumping there uh, to try and break the point break myths. And we had to see if you could free fall for 90 seconds from 4,000 feet. <laughs> we oh. had to see if you could talk in free fall and we had to see if you could catch another skydiver if you jumped out 15 seconds later. So they took the dummy from the show. They called him Buster. Uh, we threw him out of the pack 750 yeah. over the landing area at 4,000 feet and, of course, watched him go in. Um, and then I took one of the guys on a tandem with one of our camera guys trying to talk to him to see if we did that. Uh, and then had another guy jump out after I took the second guy. Um, and he tried to bomb down to catch us. So it was just kind of a laugh that all these years later, I was on a TV show trying to bust the myths of the movie that got me to start skydiving. <laughs> right. Which I thought I was funny as fuck. I remember that, the Mythbusters. I remember, I remember that. Yeah, yeah. That was a lot of fun it was just a good time because i got to take both uh, uh grant and tory i think was his name on the tandems and and my other buddies are trying to do this and i've been watching mythbusters for a couple of years by then so i was a fan of the show and of course a huge fan of another very hokey skydiving movie point break which and again if anybody listening hasn't seen the original point break dramatically better other than the wingsuiting scene than the new one <laughs> Yeah. In my opinion, the wingsuiting scene is badass. The rest of that movie's crap, I think. 
anyway, so as a jumper that's seen it and been there and done that, I want advice from you to people that are just looking at getting into the sport, whether it be skydiving or skydiving on their way to base jumping. And people that are wondering if they should keep jumping. They're just kind of scratching their heads and going, I'm not sure what else I want to do with this. What advice do you have to those two groups of people? If you're not sure, continue to go to the drop zone at least. Mm. Uh, Watch the landings. Hang out. Hang out at the fireplace at night. If the people fit, you're going to get into it. Mm. Because as you said in your shows, and you can ask anybody that's been doing this for any length of time, what do you like most about the sport? The people. The people. So if you're having trouble, uh, actually we've got a couple people right now at my home DZ that I can see that in these newbies. Mm. Uh, They just got started last spring, or or, I mean uh, last fall. So all winter, you know, they they don't have their A licenses yet, but they kind of get their magazines and they're still listening to videos. They're communicating a little bit. But I can almost see a couple of these people fading. Right. And when I see that, those are the ones I give the attention to. I want to give them that community feeling and, and let them know that, yeah, we all had those fears and we get over it. And remember how scared you were when you first got behind the wheel of a car? Sure. You were scared. Damn right. You know, you had a weapon to kill somebody or to kill yourself if you, if, oh, yeah. you know, uh, by choice or not. Yeah. <laughs> um, and, the, you know, the same thing, getting up in front of stage, you're scared or you're nervous. That's But to overcome that makes you feel good. Sure. Um, and then, again, to be around these people where if I tell people we've got anything and everything from uh, a crack whores all the way up to – attorneys and brain surgeons and sometimes it's, it's all the us. same person it's us. <laughs> and when you're at that campfire it doesn't matter if you're that crack whore or if you're that brain surgeon when our bodies hit the ground the same thing happens yep yep well the the, same the, thing. the bonfire is the great equalizer right because as soon as you sit down next to that uh, bonfire whether you're you know smoking crack or busting crack dealers you're all just a bunch <laughs> of skydivers sitting around the fireplace just shooting yep. the shit. And that that's the biggest thing. And, and I'm sure you've heard me say it a million times on this podcast. That was the concept behind this podcast in the first place was I want it to be a bonfire chat. You're sitting and you were lucky enough to listen in to two different people talking about something they fucking love. Yep. Yeah. That's good advice, man. I mean, uh, getting into the community side of things for the newbies for sure. Now, what up? What if you're you've been in it for a while and you're starting to get burned out? What do you? Is there a way for somebody to refresh it? Um, if there's a burnout, it's like what's causing that? Mm. Um, do you, do you need something new? So, uh, you know, if you've been on your belly for a decade, and now you know all the kids in the human blender standing on their heads and. <laughs> Uh, all the other crazy shit that's going on, uh, you know, do you want to progress to free flying? Do you want to sky surf? Do you want a wingsuit? Sure. Do you want a base jump? You know, um, and I hear that one a lot. Like, oh, how do I get started base jumping? Right. Well, you already have by skydiving. Yeah. If you try and land in the same place, be uh, finicky and understand your equipment and your gear. Base is very equipment oriented. Um 
you know, work your way into to, to something new. Find somebody else that you can see that energy and connect yourself to their hip. Sure. Ask them some ask them for some coaching or training. I had somebody else give a great piece of advice exactly like that, and they basically said, spot the person on the drop zone that looks like they're having the most fun and go figure yeah. out what the fuck they're doing. <laughs> yeah. And if it's not something that you want to do, find somebody else that's having a good time and go and do it, which is, I mean, come on, that's what we're doing it for in the first place. Right. Yep. So now, how do people find yep. out about the badass jerseys and stuff that you sent me? How do they find out um, anything involved in uh, Tailored for Survival? How do they track down Mo Valetto? Good luck. <laughs> <laughs> well, uh, Blue Skies was when people wanted to know something, I'd say uh, Google Mo's Monday Memoirs. And it'll take you to Blue Skies Magazine, and there will be a bunch of stories on there. And you can learn about me and my antics over the years. Mm. Well, that's no longer. Blue yep. Skies is no longer online. Um, I don't really uh, do any facey, tweety, any of that stuff. Uh, <laughs> you, you and I, are you're lucky this is happening right now. I can't I've, believe this is like first try. It's like, holy shit. Oh, I fucking love it. This is perfect. <laughs> you know what you need to do, and 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 uh, specifically since Blue Skies isn't online, you need to start a fucking blog. You need just a page that you can sit down and type out these stories because you've got so many amazing stories and a lot of heartfelt stories and a lot of crazy stories that should be shared. Yeah, I, I, <laughs> I have a hard time sitting down behind a computer. I really do. It's tough. Yeah. It's, it's, it's just... It, it gets to be a bit mundane. Here, here, let, let, me, let me tell you, here's, here's a good caveman computer story, right? Please. So, so for, for years, people could say, Mo, you should get a computer, you should get a computer. And I'm there, man, I said, that's not me. I can barely even run a, you know, a cell phone. Right. Uh, I said, by the time I get a computer and learn how to do it, I'll already be dead. I don't want to waste my time, you know, with the frustration of all that. Right. So one day, my buddy Tom, he goes, he brings up this 10-year-old mac laptop he goes here mo you can have it and i said tom if you give it to me i won't respect it i right. said as soon as i have a problem i'll throw a brick through it he said well then i won't give it to you i'll loan it to you then you have to respect it because it's not yours fair enough So i said well he goes let me show you a couple things so he showed me like i can i can do a lot of rigging research on there i can find out how to repair my sewing machines on there I can communi communicate with my friends. Yep. Porn. <laughs> Porn. Okay. Now you got me. Now you got me, right? <laughs> Endless porn. That's all the internet's for. All right. So I take this thing. Now I'm, I'm addicted. I'm using it. I open it up one morning and the screen is black. I figured, okay, it's 11 years old. It's dead. But now I need one. Right. I have to have a computer because that's how I communicate. That's how I masturbate. That's how I do everything. I need a computer. <laughs> so I call up my, my gay girlfriend, Cindy. I said, Cindy, I need a computer. Take me out shopping. We go out and I buy a brand new Mac, $6,000 know, yeah. Mac. Bring it back. And I say, okay, Cindy, I said, uh, can we take the stuff off the old one? like my pictures and stuff and, and communications, can we take it off the old one and put it on the new one? 
And as she's opening it up and saying that, well, if the screen is black, I can't see anything. Right. It's burned out. I can't help you. And she reached over and she started tapping this little button. It looks like the sun. It's called brightness. I didn't need a fucking computer. All I needed to do was turn up the brightness. <laughs> so there I am, fucking caveman, not even knowing, you know, what, what, same thing. I'm staring at all these buttons right now. I don't have a clue what half of them do. Oh, dude, that's fantastic. But so now you got two computers. You can have one scene on one and one scene on another. You can be doing rigging and porn at the same time. Well, that brand new one that I had, I took to Italy so I could put all my hot base jumping videos on there and everything. See, there you lost go. Lost it. Lost Left, it? Lost it. Yep. Brand spanking fucking new. Lost it. Came oh, home, geez. bought another brand new one. Oh, Jesus. <laughs> Jesus. Well, hey, live and learn, right? Yes. <laughs> Mo, I tell you what, I cannot thank you enough for taking the time. There's going to be need to be a round two with you, though, because I know you've got so many fucking stories that I did not get out of you. We're going to have to do this again. You know that, right? I'd love it. Awesome. I'd love awesome. It. Mo, really, thank you so much for waking up at the crack of noon and shooting the shit with me. <laughs> I really appreciate it. Hopefully, you're back to getting to jump off some rocks really damn soon. Thanks, buddy. I appreciate that. And good meeting and hanging out with you. And uh, Absolutely. Again, I, I like your style. I like how you uh, look at life. And, and you, Mo. Uh, Believe me, boogie till you bounce, right? You got it. <laughs> <laughs> Take care. Adios. <laughs> and there you have it. Another episode of Lunatic Fringe Into the Void brought to you, as always, by, and say it with me, fuck yeah, NZ Aerosports. Head to nzaerosports.com. By Pussfoot. That's right. Head to Pussfoot.com, the Extreme Sports Collective, and check out everything they've got to offer. By SummitParachuteSystems.com. Jarrett Martin and the family cranking out amazing pilot rigs, as well as incredible rigging courses. And now joining the Lunatic team, it's the one and only Tony Suits. You know them, you love them. Head to TonySuit.com. Check out all the amazing standards, as well as the new incredible signature line they've got going on. And as for us, the Lunatic Fringe is now on YouTube. That's right, you're going to have the chance to put faces to the audio by heading to YouTube.com and looking up the Lunatic Fringe Podcast. It's easy. Hit the like button, hit the subscribe button, check out all the amazing videos from the previous guests that we've had, as well as new and upcoming interviews on video. As always, I am the fucking pilot. Head to thefuckingpilot.net or theprincesspilot.com. Thanks for joining. We'll see you next time around.